Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. The vast majority of us experience some form of debt, whether it's a hex loan, credit card or mortgage. The idea of living beyond our direct level of income and capacity to pay is a fairly taken for granted aspect of life in Australia and many places the world over. Over past decades, whole industries have developed dedicated to furthering feeding uh, individual debt and enforcing compliance. And debt has also become a big talking point for governments, particularly at the current moment as we ramp up public expenditure to mitigate the worst impacts of the pandemic. It's a big and complicated issue and one that journalist and author Royce Kermelovs has tackled in his brand new book, Just Money, Misadventures in the Great Australian Debt Track, uh, the Debt Trap, sorry, which is out through University of Queensland Press. And to chat all about it, Royce joins us on the line. Thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on the book. You do a really great job of bringing together these really vast and, and complex strands that sort of link back to debt. But this was something that was sparked by personal experience. Tell us what happened to you and how it kind of uh, kicked you off on this journey. Yeah, so I mean, the short version is that I was in a car accident. Um, and that kind of, and the very short version is that I, I didn't have uh, third-party property insurance at the time, which meant I was on the hook to, pay, to buy someone a whole new car. Um, and then that began a very long process of negotiating with an insurance company who wanted me to pay up. Um, but, you know, through that process, as a journalist, I started asking questions. I started reading more. And what you find pretty quickly is that, you know, Australians are some of the most indebted people on earth. And I began to ask why. Because to me, the idea of a nation of 26 million people all being silly with their finances seemed unrealistic. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, I, I, I think this idea that people bring it on themselves, um, you know, deliberately or through, as you say, um, being silly is is just not accurate and many people would know that from their own experience. But what was it about your experience of debt and, and its sort of slippery slope, you know, stemming from a mistake? Um, how did it inform your work? I mean, how much of that emotional journey was important to the way that you looked at the issue of debt affecting other people as well? Oh, look, it was essential, you know, and it, that was one of the, I mean, in terms of this book, it's been a very hard book to write. At the same time, I, I was living out this stuff. I was having to, you know, negotiate a $20,000 bill um, and deal with a company that at times was quite difficult. Um, I was also trying to understand this intellectually. And so it wasn't just a matter of trying to put this together in the macro. It was also something that I was living and something I was thinking. And, and you begin to understand, as I talked to other people in similar circumstances who arrived in it their own way, um, you began to draw out threats. Like, for instance, there was a, a lot of people were just angry. Um, a lot of people were, you know, confused. They spent a lot of time thinking about their debt. It absorbed a lot of their thoughts. Um, and I think for many, and for the big thing for me is the way it changed the sense of time. Um, for some of the people I spoke to, they described how their ability to plan out their lives went from being in the 
period of like years and months down to you know days even and even hours um, because they were constantly thinking about their repayments. Yeah, and, and I mean, as you illustrate in the book, debt is such a core part of, of how we live and, and how we move through the world and, and attempt to progress our careers and, um, and you know, live in particular areas and, and all that sort of stuff. But it's interesting to me that it, it took this event to, um, I guess, cause you to think a little bit differently about the issue, given that, I mean, you're sort of, I think, roughly the age that I am, and it's a given that if you go to university, you'll have a hex debt, for example. It's pretty much a given that you'll have a credit card and, um, and all that sort of things. So, I mean, based on the people that you spoke to, was there much of a sense that they hadn't necessarily, just as as sort of it seems you hadn't and and a lot of us don't, really thought about debt in this kind of critical way and and the impact it might have on your life if you, for example, choose or don't choose to take out a particular loan? Yeah, I mean, I think think there's a couple of things there that are really important. First, I think if, unless you have specialized training in this area, like unless you've done, you know, uh, uh, politi- political economy or sociology, economics, um, it, it's very easy to fall into this trap of thinking that the world we live in has always been this way. And, you know, and, and it's one, as you said, where debt is the solution to every problem. You want to buy a house, take a mortgage. You want to go to uni, you get a hex debt. You, you run into financial trouble, you take out a short-term loan. Um, and it's learning about how that was not always the case, I think is very important and empowering because it lets you know that there is something else, that an alternative is possible. Um, and you know, once you learn that we made the world this way, we can remake it as, as we want. Um, and I think the other thing is that young people are deeply affected by this. Um, we see that in the way that the way we've built the housing market, for instance, means that young people are going to end up more likely to end up inheriting their parents' debts rather than inheriting the family home. Um, and I think that has certain consequences for the future. Well, that's an interesting observation. Um, before we go there, though, I mean, one thing that you tackle uh, early in your book is the industry around debt recovery. And this is something I found quite interesting that that. You know, my understanding was it was pretty much full of cowboys um, coming to get to to get people to repay their debts. But um, you discover that this is this industry is actually becoming more regulated now than it was before. Can you describe what that industry is now like uh, in debt recovery? Yeah, and also that's a good point as well because a lot of the way we think about debt is you know, based on these historical cliches, and some of them are thousands of years old. The one about debt collectors being, you know, tattooed boys banging on your door at, you know, 3 a.m. telling you to pay up, it may have existed once. <laughs> I've certainly heard stories about people doing that. Um, but these days has changed significantly because, you know, we, we, what you've had is a real effort for the industry to clean up its act. You also had the advent of the debt buying industry, which is a very different way of doing business. These companies, rather than simply, you know, being given a contract, being told to collect on money, actively buy debts from other companies, take over the rights to it, and then attempt to try and collect some money back. Um, and also for a lot of these companies, if you're a field operator, if you're a debt collector, it's very expensive to run those operations. That requires sort of training. They require, you know, there's certain rules about how they go about it. So most of this is done from call centers. Um, and then so a lot of the, and, and although the face, you know, the, the industry has a facelift, there is still problematic stuff there. I mean, the way this plays out is often more nuanced, it often plays on emotional, um, you know, on how, how you manage emotional behaviors. Um, and, there are, and there are still some cowboys in the industry. I think in the book I, I mentioned a couple of companies that are notorious for 
suing people, for instance, because that's a more effective way to get money than it is, you know, threatening someone. Yeah, and I mean, how did you go about navigating that process? You had a, a debt collector come to your house and, and you were dealing with this, um, you know, sort of huge sum of money that, that you were needing to pay as a result of not having insurance and, and getting into a car accident. What sort of strategies did you employ? And I guess what did you learn through um, that process about the, the strategies that um, debt collectors take and insurance companies take to try and get you to pay up? And you're right. That was actually a really interesting experience for me because at that point I hadn't actually had I didn't actually have a debt. I didn't actually accept the amount that the company was claiming I owed. And so when that particular debt collector turned up at my door, we were both confused as to why he was there. Um, but I guess my strategy for the whole thing, and I, I, I've since learned there's a name for it, it's kind of the serious professional, where you refuse to talk over the phone, you ask for everything in writing, you keep extremely good records, you check the rules and regulations, you check the laws to know your rights, and you insist, you insist that they be applied consistently. Um, and so I think through doing that process, I guess for me it was really interesting in a twofold way. First, because I was trying to understand this at like kind of a higher level, you could see in the interactions with these people like this, the various tricks of the trade, so to speak. But then, you know, in terms of the actual practical stuff about living through this and playing it out, it made it much easier for me to level, like, level the power equation, level the playing field in terms of how I asserted myself and ensured, and, yeah, ensured I wasn't taken advantage of. Um, and you know, it, by the end of it, it was really interesting when I was eventually passed up the chain to a manager, and I had to deal with this person. And they didn't like they were like when I when I said when I hinted that I was seriously considering making a legal or, you know, or when I, I would I would be seriously open to a legal challenge to the the amount because it was wrong. They were shocked that I would do that. And I guess my conclusion was that it seemed like a lot of people simply just don't inform themselves, don't ask questions, don't get more information, don't get help with this. And so they accept whatever they get, to, they get told to accept or they panic. And when they panic, you make a mistake, you lie. And at that point, your credibility is shot. Um, which, so I guess the key thing is keep everything in writing, you know, uh, like don't, you know, don't panic, don't offer information <laughs> um, and yeah, take your time. It's, it's a really interesting insight. I should remind listeners, we're speaking with Royce Kermelov's journalist and author all about his brand new book, Just Money, Misadventures in the Great Australian Debt Track and, uh, Trap. And I mean, the way you just described it it, it, it feels like there's a great sort of burden and onerous on the individual to really know their rights and, and study up and, and strategize, you know, really carefully about how they might go about engaging with insurance companies and debt collectors. But how much of that process stems from... I guess, you know, neoliberal orthodoxy and this investment of responsibility in the individual for um, managing their own uh, financial affairs? Well, all of it. I mean, since the 1980s, when you had the the finance sector basically unleashed and remade, you know, it was rebuilt around this principle of buyer beware. And by the way, the committee and like there was a specific committee that was set up to do this and it was the people in charge of redesigning the way the finance industry worked were all people from the you know, uh, real estate insurance and financial services businesses. Um, so, of course, they rewrote the rules in a way that benefited them. But, you know, and so the general principle was always buyer beware. And that was this kind of systematic trend. And over time, it's seen the systematic transfer of risk onto you and me as people, right? And the idea being that you and I should be able to take care of our finances perfectly, um, which is in itself ridiculous because, you know, when you're working a nine to five, when you're, you know, doing just 
division of labour by itself means that that's not possible. You know, you get home from work, you're exhausted. And that inevitably means you're going to make mistakes. And those mistakes cost, you know, will end up costing money. And because there are no social supports left to help you when, that, when those mistakes happen, or there's few, few left, um, you wind up yeah, owing money. We wind up in debt. And I guess the issue with this in a systemic way is twofold. One, it makes a lot of people really, really angry, especially at times like during a pandemic when there's this big external shock. And two, it makes a system that is incredibly fragile because it kind of keeps going when everything is kind of good. But once you get, you know, this, these kind of external shocks or something happens, it quickly unravels. And we've kind of been watching that unravel over the last six months. Yeah, and interesting in that period, we've seen the robo-debt issue emerge during these pandemic times and actually many people have had their debt debts wiped and many of them were seen as not lawful in many ways uh, and that was government um, debt or debt to debt to the, the government and I wonder if um, the approaches taken by government you found to be different to those taken by debts to uh, private companies or individuals. Well, and that, that's a, well, another really good point as well. So RoboDebt was really interesting because of the way that financial thinking and logic has been applied to the social security system. So government, which should be, you know, officers of social security as just a right of being a citizen, starts to think about this as if they were a private for-profit company, and then you wind up with RoboDebt. Um, but... Yeah, I, I and in the book I used the the camp the, the fight against robo debt though as a way to find some kind of hope because what you see when you go back and look at that is the way primarily young people organised and fought back and even though throughout that time there was this real kind of sense of. I don't want to say despair, but this kind of frustration and anger and cynicism at the fact that this has happened at all and that people have suffered for this. But it is through work, it was through that cooperation and working together and organizing that we have arrived at the point today where, you know, it's been proven to be illegal. The government is in the process of paying back that money and theoretically at least won't be able to do that again. Um, and I think the lessons you can take from that are, yes, it's, you know, when, you, when people don't pay attention, when people don't turn up and, you know, object and organize, government will you know, adopt, uncritically adopt some of these behaviors, but we can do something about it. And I think that's the important thing. Yeah, it, it is good to take hope from those those types of examples. And, and I mean, another area that you delve into is um, is banking in the financial services sector as well. And of course, we had a royal commission looking into this. Um, based on on your research throughout this book, do you have much of a sense of whether anything substantial has changed from those revelations around that you know really predatory lending practices that um, were implemented and even encouraged by particular companies? I think the Banking Royal Commission was a really interesting facet of the story, right? Because at the time it was treated as like this big moment of confrontation between the Australian people and the banking sector. But it was actually part of this wider narrative. Um, and I think and since that's happened, I think one guy has gone to jail from memory. Um, but other than that, I mean, there hasn't been heaps that's changed. And even and what was interesting is watching the fallout from the World Commission once that you know the report was handed down, or even just before then, you saw this raft of articles and commentary saying, you know, oh, if we if we tighten, you know, we are lending too much, we'll crash the economy, and you know, it'll be all too terrible. 
apocalypse. So even before that report was handed down, the people that make the, you know, make their money by making debts were fighting really, really hard to stop stuff from you know, any, any kind of you know, significant change from taking place. Um, and, you know, and, and since then, you've had the bushfires and the pandemic, and so the spotlight has been taken off those financial sector reforms because of you know, the immediate apocalypse. Um, but whether, whether there will be significant reforms in the future, open question yeah when we're facing an immediate apocalypse yeah i know i'm just thinking about i I haven't gone as far as apocalypse in my own mind yet but i think i'm just trying to hang on to whatever i can um but i mean one thing i've i'm being a little flippant oh no no i I liked it (laughs) um uh, anyway rose uh, we shouldn't laugh at that um uh, i was looking at your your past books and i mean you do seem to gravitate towards stories where people are in precarious financial situations you you've written about those who lost their lost their livelihoods when Holden left the country for instance what do you think it is about these stories what what do they tell us what what do we learn from from focusing in on people in in debt well I should say that so far my work has been kind of a happy accident I didn't you know set out to track these sorts of things it's just something I started to pick up and with the original reporting on like the closure of the car industry and what was going to happen um, but I guess what's been interesting is that this is all part of like a very long running process and one and one project leads into the next and so I think that and the is, is the latest thing you know, the latest version of that and I think it's important because once you put that over the landscape, once you start to look at events happening around the country through the lens of debt, stuff that seems isolated and insignificant and, you know, its own distinct issue actually becomes more connected than you realize. And you can start to kind of make sense out of events. Um, and I think, yeah, that that's especially true when, it, when you look at debt, you know, across the board. I mean, it helps make sense of, you know, the election, you know, the, the support that, you know, Paul and Hanson stumbled into in regional Queensland electorates at the time of massive drought. It helps make sense of, you know, the robo-debt campaign helps make sense of the uh, Banking Royal Commission. Um, and I think that in, being unfamiliar with these things often sees a lot of territory to those who know more, and and these tend to be people who are in very powerful political positions who make the decisions. And I think it's a, you know it's good for us as people to learn and read and understand what's happening within finance, as it means that we can then make better choices and make better demands. Yeah, and no, I mean, the political side to this is something we, we don't have time to get into, but that idea of the role that debt plays in, um, you know, the support for populist politicians and, and political candidates, for example, is, is a whole other issue. But um, congratulations on the book, Royce. It's a, it's a really great read and brought to life by, um, yeah, terrific writing and, um, and anecdotes from people you speak to throughout the book as well. You've managed to bring together a whole lot of complex threads in a highly readable way. So um, thanks so much for chatting to us today on on Triple R and hope you get to enjoy some in-person book launches if that's uh, possible where you are. Well, hopefully. And thank you for having me. It's been great. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. Royce Kerbalov's there, journalist and author, talking all about his book, Just Money, Misadventures in the Great Australian Debt uh, Trap. I don't know why I find that so hard to say. Um, out through University of Queensland Press. And oh, um, you can get your copies now online or at your nearest bookshop. to muddy your um, outro there, uh, Dylan, but I remember once um, trying to talk about cluster munitions and kept calling them <laughs> cluster musicians and that just really didn't have the same sound. So anyway, total empathy. <laughs> (laughs) That's right, yeah. Happens to the best of it. 
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And uh, Melbourne's so-called Ring of Steel, the road checkpoints dotted around the metro regional boundary to keep us out of regional Victoria, has apparently been causing all sorts of traffic chaos over the weekend. Not that most of us really know that. We only see it in pictures because we're limited to our 5K zones. But this uh, current situation made us think about how hard that boundary is now between what is considered city and what is country. And uh, Dave Nichols is Associate Professor in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne. And these are the kinds of uh, things we like to pick his brains about. And it's great to have you back on Triple R, Dave. Good morning. Hi, Carly. How are you doing? Hey, Dave. And um, Dave, this, this sort of checkpoint um, situation has been making me think about the urban growth boundary, you know, the, the boundary that's there to sort of help us better manage urban sprawl in Melbourne. And I'm wondering whether you think people, you know, normally they want to be on the inside of that because of property values and the, and the like. I wonder how many people are currently feeling very happy there on the outside of that at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Like I, you know, I mean, I try to have a positive view about humanity, but right now I feel like um, people are being extraordinarily short-sighted. I don't just mean... I don't mean the people who go out demonstrating against wearing a mask. I mean, I mean they are. But I mean the, um, the the people who are, like, suddenly going, hey, I don't ever need... You know, I can I can work from home wherever I am. I can go into the bird cell. Um, which, you know, technically is true. I, I don't know what the Wi-Fi is like or the, the NBN's like in Birdsville, but, you know technically is true, but there, there are a lot of people who suddenly are like, you know, well, if I don't have to commute to work every day, if I don't have to, and I still have a job, then, you know, I can go and, and live in all kinds of places or, you know, so suddenly the country, whatever that might mean to particular people, has become uh, very attractive. And of course, in the, in the immediate, you know, right now, September 2020, the country is attractive because they don't have the same kind of lockdown that we do, although they still have a lot of restrictions. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a few more um, inverted commas freedoms that they have there that, that we don't have in Melbourne. And do you reckon, Dave, that that impulse to move out to the country and, and work from home and live this kind of idyllic existence will subside once we, uh, you know, get to opening up again and, and going back to some version of normality? Isn't that a great... It's a great thing to think about, Dylan. I, I'm, I, I'd love to know. I'd love to see, you know, in a few... I, I will love to see in a few years... Uh, how this whole situation has has changed. Now, I remember, I think it was last time we talked, I was talking about a 1970s report about um, the possibility of of the communications revolution changing Mm. the way that people worked and that then it didn't really happen because for whatever reason, people, I think, apart from anything else, people seem to enjoy being in the workplace a a lot, um, whether they... Uh, actually admitted it or not, it was a big part of their life, that kind of socialisation and that, you know, rubbing shoulders, so to speak, with their co-workers. Uh, I'd be interested to see. And, you know, just as an aside, I noted this morning, absolutely this morning, nothing to do with this conversation that we were going to have, but I was about to message a co-worker, a colleague, with some information about another colleague and something that went on in their life. And then I, and, and I suddenly thought, well, She's not going to see this guy for like six months or or more. She doesn't need to know that information right now. Or, you know, maybe it it just, it suddenly felt like, wait, these aren't the people in my 
you know, immediate everyday existence. They're, you know, I've started to become alienated from my co-workers is what I'm saying. That's an um, that's an interesting thing. Just just quickly, because often you know, particularly regional towns and, and regional areas thrive on a sense of community and and knowing everyone yeah. and and existing in this kind of you know bubble where you go down to the local shop, you know who bakes your bread, all that sort of stuff. But if you are sort yeah. of working in essentially an office, normally an office based job from your lounge room and not engaging in those sorts of activities, I wonder whether some of those connections might be um, not as possible to forge as they would be kind of normally. Really, that's a really good point. I was thinking about that as well. I've just been watching this um, ABC reality show called um, Escape from the City. And this is called Escape to the Country. I can't remember now. There's a, there's a British one with one name and there's an Australian one with the other name. But um, it's basically, you know, these, these couples who are investigating particular regional areas and they're like, oh, I live in the city right now. We live in a crampy little... Pokey little flat, and you know we've got three enormous dogs, and it's really difficult. Um, we want that. We want that freedom. We want that. You know that. Um, you know connection to nature. We want to be able to grow our own silver beet and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm minimising these people, but it's a genuine thing. That, <laughs> I know. That I thought you were really feel. talking them up there, Dave. <laughs> now, you know. Well, it is kind of what they say. But anyway, um, what what this show, as far as I, from what I've seen doesn't address is that question of community you know and i think people talk about community in an abstract sense but um you know what what i think i mean this shows a little more like real estate porn let's be fair but um it's it's also you know there are those kinds of issues i don't think people are really addressing is what do they lose in terms of their connection to to people in in their current situation which may be their, their co-workers or it may be their their actual you know the, the place where they they live in the city right now which is often envisaged as kind of village atmospheres uh, around the suburbs of melbourne i mean that's you know we could go into that forever but uh there's also that that situation of you know people in regional communities for very understandable reasons are often um you know, suspicious and standoffish when it comes to n- newcomers and, you know, those old um, tropes, which I think are still true of, you know, you have to be, you have to live somewhere for three generations before people will accept you, you as a You've got to have a few people on the ground before people think that you're from there. But That's I wonder, true. I wonder, Dave, with regards to uh, that movement, I mean, I think, you know, tree change and sea change were already concepts before the pandemic and I'm yeah. imagining that uh, those that were already planning to move might be speeding up those plans and um, what we're seeing is a stop on people kind of moving to Melbourne and, and yeah. migrating here from around the world so things are changing um, yeah. in that sense uh, but I mean do you do you think that we will see a speed up of, of the sea change idea and, and perhaps that could be you know, a positive thing also for, for regional communities? Yeah, potentially positive thing for regional communities, but, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you, um, you love you love your regional community because it's small and compact and you have a lot of space and if everyone, you know, comes and loves it as well and there's, you know, twice, three times as many people there, then it's no, it no longer has the amenity that it originally had. I suppose those town uh, boundaries that, you know, a lot of, of towns around Victoria do have limits to their boundaries as well. So, of course. Uh, so, I mean, what about the peri-urban areas of Melbourne? Because that really, when I looked at where the checkpoints are, that's kind of where they're falling in these 
these areas which people see as very precious. There's the sort of food bowls of, of Melbourne where, you know, nice leafy greens can be transported to the to the city pretty yeah. rapidly. Um, you know, what about those regions? Do you think we might yeah. think of them a little different, that, that, that they really do act as a buffer? Sort of, well, look, I mean, I think about work that I've done in recent years um, through my day job on uh, looking at the city of Casey, which has been the food the food bowl of, you know, sort of like the Berwick, uh, Cranbourne, um, Narrow Warren kind of area, where right now as we speak, well, actually, maybe not right now, but in recent years, the, you know, those big farming areas have been just sold off as housing. Um very short-sightedly. Uh, and may I say also that those sorts of places are often sold on that notion of a, of a village community or a small local community, a local community attraction. Um, and that, that village thing comes up again and again. And I, the reason I'm bringing that up is that we've seen Mornington Peninsula, for instance, in the last few days, appealing to the Andrews government saying, please classify us as mm. regional, not as urban, because that's what we are. Um, we're, we're a bunch of villages, um, you know. Where, where this term village came from in the Australian context, I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, you see it in the Dandenongs as well. They always talk about themselves as those those townships, whatever you call them, I mean, they're suburbs, um, talk about themselves as villages. And I, I, mean, I understand it's a state of mind um, more than anything. And, you know, it has all kinds of uh, impositions and definitions that are, that are around it. But it is, you know, it is very interesting that, that people look at, their living conditions in that way. Of course, you know, defining yourself as a village is also about keeping people out as much as it is about keeping people in. It's like, you know, it's like that, um, uh, you know, the League of Gentlemen, remember that uh, that stuff about, you know, we're a local local business, we're a local shop, uh, that kind of stuff. We don't want your type here, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of that well, we're kind uh, of... sometimes for some people. Sorry to jump in, Dave, but we're seeing, for obvious reasons now, as you mentioned, the Mornington Peninsula and the Yarra Valley and, and Little River near Geelong as well, kind of yeah. fighting to be reclassified as, as part of regional Victoria for very yeah. obvious reasons at the moment. But I guess in, in times gone by, were there any particular benefits to being classified as part of metropolitan uh, Melbourne for those sorts of areas well, on sort of the, the fringe of, of Melbourne's actual, you know, um, in terms of density where most people live? Yeah, fully. And, you know, I mean, one of the things we have to remember is the urban growth boundary is not like, oh, this is where the urban, this is where urban development has happened and we're not going to go any further. It's, this is, this is a, we're envisaging where, how far it can and should go and, you know, we're, we're allotting space for growth for another uh, 20 or 30 or 40 years. So there's, you know, that, there's, a whole, there's a whole planning sense to that. It's not just, um, you know, the existing development area so um so there's a kind of a there's an aspirational element to to that as well um there's there's all kinds of you know there's been all kinds of ideas um since the 70s i've done a lot of work this year on melton and sunbury two areas in the you know western areas of melbourne that were towns that were designated satellite cities by the Hamer government in the in the mid to late 70s that were you know um, there was a whole lot of contention then about, you know, are we a, are we a village? Are we a, um, are we ready to become a kind of a, you know, a secondary 
suburban area. Uh, Sunbury, some people might remember when the, the, railroad, the railway line was electrified to Sunbury, there was a lot of upset. Because people were saying, well, this is just going to bring, you know, the suburbs to Sunbury. And Sunbury is a, a village or a town or, you know, it's a country town. It's not, a, it's not an outlying area of Melbourne, but let's be fair, that is what it has become. Um, so there's, there's, it's, it's a constant back and forth. The thing that, that I think is really uh, interesting, the thing that I think is really odd about all this is that so often... It seems to be the the country, the regional areas or the country towns, whatever, don't seem to do anything but be passive about these kinds of uh, activities. Or you know, they just sort of observe this. They seem to just observe this and just go, "Oh, a lot of people are moving to join us in uh, Castlemaine or, or Bendigo." Um, but probably a good thing. Who knows? But you know, there's, there doesn't seem to be anyone in regional Victorian towns standing up. And saying we're going to attract, we're going to attract twenty thousand more people here. It's going to be good for us. We're going to make sure they they come to you know live in particular designated areas. We're going to plan out you know an extension to our town. That kind of thing used to happen uh, in the forties and fifties. You know, so I'm going back a long way now, um, but it tends not to happen. Uh, anymore, uh, I'm sure there are people with big ideas in that regard, but you don't hear from them. They don't. They don't get. The Who would have the ideas? The is this sort of like a, a a town council thing to to think through around around growth in that way, or is it like chambers of commerce, or who would? normally have that's, such a vision. what you would assume. I mean, you know, people in Geelong, you know, there's, and there's always conflict. There's conflict between state government and and local government in that in that regard as well because, you know, the local government will say, uh, you know, we, we need to do it this way and they're beholden to their very local constituents and state government is like, sees the big picture um, across the state and says, well, you know, actually I think we should make room for this many people and local government goes, uh, you know, our... our um, Electorate will crucify us. So there's those kinds of problems. Which, which problems. government was it? Which, which state it. government was it that that had the sort of idea of Victoria as being a um, a state of of cities? You know, where there was sort of um, cities they around. They talk the talk of that. Um, I mean, Hamer, the Hamer government in the 70s was was big on that, and then there were some. Uh, some tiny problems of um, corruption and, and people with advance notice buying up land that they shouldn't have been buying up and you know selling to the state government for obscene profit. So there was there are a few problems with that um, that grand vision kind of crumbled um, at that time in the in the late seventies. But uh, you know that I mean the the um, Brax, Brax and Brumby had some good ideas about. Um, getting people to those, you know, those second cities of Victoria, so Bendigo, Ballarat, and so on. Um, if I remember correctly, Brax's Brax was the member for Ballarat, so you know he had a he had a double interest in that. But um, you know, it's it, at that time I think it was difficult to persuade people to to do that because they were really doing it on terms of it's a commute to Melbourne. So if you're not going to put the the money into establishing industry and and business and making it a uh, an attractive white collar place to live and work, then you you start to run into problems with attracting people. So many, sorry, there's so many so many issues that that come on board when you are you know you have to kind of it has to be a bit of a I think a big carrot and a little stick 
mm. and you, you're kind of making people go go places. Um, not always easy, even though Ballarat, what a lovely town. I mean, yeah, a, lots of people like it. City, beautiful. Bendigo, beautiful city. We're, we're, we're sort of out of time, but I, I have to say that um, my one of my sisters-in-law has been texting me through this conversation, Dave, I'm listening in and saying there's um, a marketing campaign for some properties up in uh, Elmore, just out of Bendigo, that says Elmore, uh, uh, a great t- town in these testing times, a very safe place to live. So perhaps some are getting on the front <laughs> foot with these marketing campaigns that right might now. Be a, that might be a person that I know saying that. Well, perhaps. Why doesn't Elmore have a campaign, El More, More, More. There's always more in El More. You are a marketing genius, Dave. <laughs> I know it. I know it. Just comes out of me. I don't know how it happened. I mean, the, the, the other side of this, just very quickly, is the health burden, healthcare burden as well in regional towns. That you know, that's been a, a big sticking point. If people go to holiday houses and so on and get really sick, and, and the virus gets out of control, so that's another thing oh that needs God. to be really, you know, factored in um, to the, the development of regional well, areas that don't necessarily have that, the infrastructure. On top of that, Dylan, you're correct, and there is, that's been the sea change problem for decades now. People go to those beautiful places, you know, on the um, far out of Melbourne or the big cities or whatever, and then when they want to buy back into Melbourne, they're, um, they're not in a good position because they've, you know, they've kind of done, done their money on that. So they're, they're, that's a, they're a stress on the regional health systems and, um, they're, you know, they're kind of rooted. On that note, um, we'll catch you again in a month. Look forward to it. Me too. Um, Dave Nichols, he's Associate Professor in Urban Planning over at the University of Melbourne, talking there about the city-country boundary and uh, let's hope that ring of steel lifts very soon. Triple. Ah. And it's widely expected this week that the federal government will release its long-awaited technology investment roadmap. This is following a string of federal government's uh, announcements last week on energy, uh, including the big reveal about the government's willingness to intervene in the energy market and build a gas-fired power plant if necessary, which Scott Morrison then seemed to walk back from at the end of last week, so just yesterday. And he also said yesterday he was certain Australia would achieve net zero emissions by mid-century but his government wouldn't set a target for this. Giles Parkinson is editor of Renew Economy and it's great great to have you back on Triple R, Giles. It's been a while. Thank you very much for having me. And so despite all these announcements and the commentary last week from the Prime Minister, we still don't seem to have a climate or energy policy, do we? No, I don't think we do, actually. Um, it's funny because the Labor keep on describing this as the, um, the coalition government's 22nd energy policy since they came to power seven years ago, but um, I think that's a grand total of grand total is zero because <laughs> we don't actually... I mean, you know, they, 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 they pull down the carbon price, they try to kill the renewable energy target, they try to get rid of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, they try to get rid of the climate... Um, Commission. Um, they did get rid of the Climate Council, but really they've done nothing um, constructive at all. Um, and last week, this last week of of announcements, just been thoroughly confusing and, and and quite dismaying actually, because it just seems to be 
all about gas and no one can actually understand why that would be. I mean, gas will play a role over the next 10, 15, 20 years, but it will be a diminished role even from what it is now. And this idea that we should be fracking all these basins across the country, the idea that we should be intervening in the market and building a new one gigawatt gas plant, or maybe it's only going to be 250 megawatts that can't seem to make up their mind. I know, it's just um, so, it's really interesting. And I, I suppose I'd love you to talk us through what was actually announced last week. But this idea that the, the Prime Minister is going to talk in, and, and the, also the Energy and Emissions Reduction Minister, Angus Taylor, is going to talk about 1,000 megawatts here and 250 megawatts there and, and connect with the public is, is interesting as well. But what actually did they announce last week? Well, they, they said that because Liddell is closing in 2023, um, they wanted to see enough capacity replacing Liddell, and they hadn't seen enough capacity, so if it wasn't done by April, um, then they would do it themselves. Now, this goes against all the expert advice. Now, we've actually had about seven years' notice of Liddell's closure, and, you know, <laughs> surprise, surprise, a lot of the companies, different companies have been doing different things. So they've been announcing a whole bunch of different, um, you know, there's been an upgrade even of the coal-fired power station. Um, there has been a smaller gas plant um, announced. There's been a lot of battery storage, but they don't seem to understand battery storage. And I guess this comes back to one of the things, you know, we've seen through the COVID-19 pandemic, Scott Morrison and the other ministers very happy to stand next to experts and listen to those experts. Yet when it comes to energy and climate, they just seem to ignore them. Now, the expert advice from the Australian energy market operator was that the gap created by Liddell has been filled or as good as filled and it would be filled. Then Morrison and Taylor tried to claim that Oh, yeah, well, it might be filled, but it's not going to be filled enough and prices are going to shoot up. But their own report, the Liddell Task Force, which they've been sitting on for five months, contradicts that. It says, no, it's not going to jump up because we've had a lot more um, notice than we did with Hazelwood and there's a lot more spare generation around. And then Warrison walked back once again on Sunday saying, well, it's not going to be one gigawatt, it's going to be a 250 megawatt one. But all these threats of intervention, I mean, one of the reasons why investment has been slow in dispatchable energy, and it's true, a lot of the pumped hydro and battery storage projects are sort of sitting on the sidelines trying to work out what the heck the government is up to. They've had their own program, which is an underwriting scheme to subsidise new gas plants and things like that. That's been going for two years. Nothing has happened. And yeah. now they sort of say, oh, well, if you don't build it in seven months, then we're going to do it ourselves. It's just rubbish. And, I mean, if you, you know, I don't want to be too cynical, but, I mean, the, the Liddell power plant is in a potentially sort of politically volatile region for the ALP. Is there a significant political element to the government, um, you know, talking up, uh, underwriting a, a new kind of gas-fired power plant in, in that region? Oh, look, there's no doubt that the coalition has just taken advantage on the um, Labor's um, unwillingness to be in opposition. Um, you know, they're just not really sort of attacking this um, with any gusto at all. So they're basically sort of creating all this space for the coalition to, to play in. And, and Morrison is very good at talking. And he talks and he talks and he talks and he spins and he spins and he spins, but nothing actually happens. Um, but this whole idea that gas would be a transition fuel, Scott Morrison claiming, oh, well, gas chose itself, yeah. um, is just... It's just really. It, it, I love the age, I love the agency given to gas in that in that comment. Oh gosh, 
gosh, look, it's, it's, look it's, it's bizarre, but it's also a little bit scary. I mean, um, gas, when you actually think about it and you look at it in detail, um, is um, very nearly as polluting as coal. We don't actually know how much is polluting because all the coal seam gas and the fracking things that go on in Australia, uh, we don't measure the methane leakage at the, at the wells. So we refuse to do that. So we're just sort of shutting our ears, sh- shutting our eyes, closing our ears, um, and, and just sort of hoping like hell it, it doesn't pollute. But, I mean, the reality is, I think when it comes to climate, I think the government governing parties just don't seem to care. Yeah, and I think um, also leaving things up to hope when it, when we actually need to do something um, with the climate challenge is, is intriguing. But uh, another thing that was announced last week um, was the broadening of the mandate for the Australian Renewable Energy Agency and also the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And this um, broadening received a mixed response. Um, some wel- you know, welcomed the new money given to those agencies, and also that it, can, you know, they some of them, you know, some of the money can now go to things like energy efficiency and the like. But why was the response mixed, Giles? Look, I guess there was for some for some people there was relief that there was going to be any funding at all because um, Arena was just about exhausted of funds. So I mean, it was created about eight years ago um, with a two point five billion dollar budget. The coalition slashed that budget by around about third, and it just about spent everything. It only had about seventy million dollars to spend, and most of that's kind of been allocated anyway. So people are pretty pleased that it's been extended for ten years. It's a much reduced funding envelope, and it's already been doing things like energy efficiency and other things like that. And I look. That's fine. That, 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 that's really good. I guess the big concern was about this opening of their mandates of both Arena and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation that they can go into instead of clean um, energy, sort of zero emissions energy, they can go into what they're calling low emissions technology, which essentially means um, carbon capture and storage. And hydrogen. Now, hydrogen might be a good thing, but probably only if it's sourced from renewables. So it's wind and solar, using excess wind and solar to, to, you know, basically crack, split water into two, um, hydrogen and oxygen, and and just using the hydrogen to create a storage or export fuel or whatever it is that you want to do with it. Um, The fear, and I think this might be confirmed in the technology roadmap that will be released released tomorrow, and this is the follow-on from this announcement about ARENA, is that they're going to talk very big about hydrogen, but it's not necessarily going to be green hydrogen. It's going to be hydrogen paired with carbon capture and storage, which basically means a good excuse to keep a coal plant running and a gas plant running at a time that we don't actually know that carbon capture and storage can capture all the emissions or that it can be done anywhere near commercially um, commercially viable. So that's the real big worry. Mm. We're speaking with Giles Parkinson from New Economy all about the federal government's latest energy announcements and particularly the push towards gas. And you mentioned um, batteries before, Giles, and there has been some rhetoric from uh, federal MPs, federal government MPs, that, that batteries kind of aren't a silver bullet, that they can't necessarily provide enough um, storage or or capacity for our energy needs. But we've also seen um, entrepreneur Mike Cannon-Brook speaking to Elon Musk as well to, um, I guess, investigate what role batteries can play in Australia's future energy mix and and specifically, I suppose, in his enterprise. What do we know about the way that batteries are currently functioning in Australia sort of over recent times in terms of allowing that sort of dispatchable uh, energy? 
Oh, it's been quite an eye-opener, really, because if you go back, it's only three years ago we got the first grid-scale battery in Australia, and that was after the big blackout, and that was after Canon Brooks first talked with Elon Musk. Um, Elon Musk had boasted um, a Tesla battery can solve South Australia's problems, and so billionaire, um, sorry, Canon Brooks got onto Twitter and said, um, you reckon you can do it in 100 days, can you? And he goes, yes, and that sort of you know, produces irresistible force, and, and it was built in less than 100 days, and South Australia had what was then, up until recently the world's biggest um, lithium-ion battery and we've now got about six of them across the state and about another dozen coming. Look, it's really been quite remarkable. Uh, it's changed the whole thinking about the way that you can manage a grid, um, particularly with a lot of renewables in there. I mean, people are a bit dismissive saying, oh, well, that Tesla battery can only power South Australia for three and a half seconds or something like that. I mean, that's sort of, it's really quite a stupid comment and dishonest comment because batteries can do more than just sort of store excess power. They're a fundamental enabler in the grid. The Tesla batteries we've already seen has played a fantastic role in improving grid stability, holding the grid together. So we've actually seen quite a lot of blackouts over the last three or four years in Australia, most of them caused by network, network faults or, ironically, gas plant trips, problems with gas <laughs> plants. Um, but in South Australia, since that battery's gone in... Um, there's been no incidents at all because the battery has proved adept at holding the grid together. It's really been quite extraordinary. Now, we're seeing, uh, look, it's early days in batteries, and that's why there's not a lot of them around, but if you actually wait about three or four or five years, there's going to be more. They can provide all sorts of services, including frequency control and uh, reactive power um, services and inertia. And then as the costs keep on coming down, they're going to be providing even more of that longer duration storage. So one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. And we're already seeing in the US that, that big batteries are replacing gas generators in responding to those peaking events. Because traditionally, peak demand's always been a thing. We've had peaking gas generators on standby because coal is never quick, never quick enough to react. So the gas peaking plant comes in, but now they're closing them because batteries are faster and better and cheaper at doing that. And um, and I, I really have an eye out for Tesla Battery Day, which is this Wednesday our time. I think that's going to be really, really important. Just in the scale of progress we're going to see in the batteries, their extended life, the cost coming down, and there's so much interest in that, and I just think that's going to be a really, another really important step forward. Yeah, interesting. And also that idea that uh, there's information from around the world that we could be drawing on here, and it makes me think about your comment about our hydrogen perhaps not going to be green, but I imagine that international markets are going to want green hydrogen from Australia, Giles, and I imagine many in industry would like to see that happen too because they're the kind of markets of the future. But we heard the Prime Minister not commit, again, not commit to setting a net zero target by 2050 or by mid-century, but also saying Australia is going to achieve it anyway. What's your thinking around this attitude? Oh, well, this government's shown an extraordinary capacity to convince itself of things which aren't going aren't to be true. For instance, you know, it convinces itself that there'll be demand for its thermal coal for decades and decades and decades to come. Um, it's convinced itself there'll be demand for um, LNG uh, for decades and decades and decades to come, and that LNG is actually reducing emissions elsewhere, when actually most of the studies sort of say that LNG is probably um, um, as or more, even more polluting than coal-fired generation once you include all the different aspects of it. So, um, yeah, look, and, and, and in the same way, it looks like they're going to try and convince themselves about this, um, about this, what's called brown hydrogen, which is hydrogen that comes from brown coal. I mean, they're just literally burning, you know, 
tracks of mud, basically, to to, to create energy, and then just sort of taking the hydrogen out of the out of the emissions. Um, it's um, look, it's you know, it's it's truly scary. At the moment, at the moment, that is cheaper than green hydrogen because green hydrogen relies on a process called electrolysis. You know, um, you use the electrolysis to sort of split the um, the water into two. Um, but the cost of the electrolysis are expected to come down really rapidly. So in five or ten years' time, or probably earlier, um, green hydrogen will be much cheaper. Um, it, it just seems to me. To be bizarre that they should be thinking of brown hydrogen or blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen with gas. But look, that's the way that this government thinks. It thinks only in terms of fossil fuels. It just can't. It can't get its mind out of the old paradigm. It can't get its mind shifting from the old centralised generation model. It doesn't seem to want to understand or embrace all these new technologies, the whole shift towards a distributed energy system and the whole shift to renewables. Um, and I'm not too sure what it's going to take for them to get there. Yeah, I mean, the, the word bizarre has been used a few times in the conversations we've had with you, Giles, over the years um, as we've tried to kind of make sense of um, energy policies and announcements coming out of the federal government. But, I mean, as it stands, where do you think this might head politically? Because, as we mentioned at the start, I mean, Labor has been wedged on this issue. There there might be an element of being sort of a little bit um, uh, trigger shy when it goes to wading into these debates, given how many prime ministers and, and, um, you know, MPs have kind of staked their reputation on climate action. What, What does sort of the immediate future hold for this politically, do you think? Well, it's been interesting. It was after after the bushfires happened um, earlier this year. There was a huge amount of interest in uh, in climate solutions and energy, and we found the traffic to our website doubled. Like you know, in a, in a month, it was just extraordinary. And I think people were looking for a narrative. They were looking. For, they were really interested in solutions. And I think at the time, Labor were quite prepared to embrace that. Now, all that's kind of been run over a bit by um, COVID nineteen. Now we're starting to see that interest generate again. With the governments talking about energy. Labor doesn't seem to know where it wants to put itself and place itself there. I really think people are looking for a narrative, but looking for solutions, and they're looking for the transition plan. So, um, you know, it's one thing to sort of say, okay, let's get to zero emissions, uh, and we'll go from here to there. You know, the challenge is is actually sort of making that transition happen. And it's it's a technological and engineering um, challenge. It's an economic challenge, and it's also a social challenge, because you've got to think about all those communities who are currently dependent on those industries and you've got to make sure that there's a narrative for them. And it's really interesting seeing in, in Spain they're closing their last coal-fired power station and they're making sure that each and every one of them, the workers there, are trained in new technologies, you know, wind farm operations and battery storage and other things like that. And that's the sort of narrative which has got to come out nice and strong rather than just telling people, oh, you can stay here with your old technologies and you'll be right, we're not going to affect you. They don't buy that, I don't think. I, you know, they actually want to know how they're going to move how the community is going to move from one place to another. And I think until there's a really clear narrative about that, then it's going to be really hard for Labor, I suppose, to sort of stick its hand up and say, look, this is really important. We need to sort of do something on climate. We need to protect our environment. We need to protect our economy. Let's get going on this. It's really interesting observations you've got there, Giles, and I suppose without um, we can't spend too much time on this answer, but uh, will the tech investment roadmap that everyone's expecting to be released tomorrow, will that be that narrative, do you think? 
No, I think I'm just going to be banging my head on the keyboard once again, getting angry and frustrated. So oh, I'll be interested um, in reading I'm, that article. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not too sure what letters appear when you bang your head on the keyboard. I don't know either. <laughs> Find out tomorrow. <laughs> might, be, might be more coherent than other, other things written down. Um, thank you so much, Giles. It's uh, really wonderful to have you back on Triple R after a little while, and uh, we'll be checking Renew Economy for the latest. Thanks heaps for being with us today. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.